Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome to another episode in our cult miniseries. Tonight, we will be talking about the People's Temple Part 2. We're going to go over Jim's influence in San Francisco and Los Angeles, a tiny little legal issue that he ran into, the event that made him decide to move his entire church to Jonestown, and a little bit more. But first, Let's get into our week slash weekend recap, and I am very excited to tell you about my weekend. It was wonderful, and the reason that it was wonderful is, first off, we had a three-day weekend because Monday, yesterday, was a holiday. It was President's Day here in the United States. I don't know if there are any listeners out there that are not from the United States, but we have that holiday. Anyways, yesterday was also my daughter's second birthday. Yes, my little tiny baby is two. So Saturday afternoon, we had her birthday party with a big group of our friends who really we know all of them through church and Bible study. They all came over. We celebrated. We had macaroni and cheese, and then we got Chick-fil-A nuggets, and then we tried her birthday cake. I got this little tiny chocolate cake from a grocery store here close by our house and thought, okay, this one's small. Maybe she'll like it. It won't be that big of a deal. It's just normal chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. Who doesn't love chocolate? Well, apparently my child just doesn't love chocolate or doesn't like getting her hands dirty or something because we sang her happy birthday, we blew out her candle, and then she just wouldn't touch the cake. We ended up putting her hands in it and she literally just held her hands up, looked at them, and looked at us like, why aren't you cleaning these off? My hands are dirty. She really honestly didn't eat very much of it. I mean, we gave it to her with a fork, but that was about it. She didn't get her hands all in it and like rumble around or nothing. Nothing you would expect from a two-year-old. Then we opened some of her presents and hung out. And then pretty much all of our friends stayed over until about 1130 that night. Which was really great because some of them we haven't really hung out with that much recently. Like, no real reason, but we just haven't. And also because they all helped me with shuffling my daughter's clothes. So, yes, she's two years old, but she's very tiny. So she just got out of 
being able to wear 12 month clothes and can now wear 18 to 2T clothes. So they all help me shuffle her clothes in her room and then put all of her smaller size clothes in bins and then we stuck them in the attic. So that was great. Sunday morning, we had church and then there was a chili cook-off. But unfortunately, I couldn't eat any of it. Not sure if I've actually ever mentioned this, but I am what you would call a pescatarian. So I don't eat any uh, red meat or white meat. I only eat seafood and then obviously vegetables. So I couldn't eat any of the chili, but my husband can. So we went anyways. And then we came home and we rested for a little bit until we had to go back out to a memorial service for um, a woman in our church that passed away. She was probably in her 80s and had a stroke, I think, last year or the year prior. And she did end up passing away. So we went to uh, pay our respects to her husband and her family. Now, Monday, like I said, was our daughter's actual birthday. My husband and I were both off of work uh, because of the holiday. So Monday morning, we took her out to eat breakfast at this little restaurant called Grumps. They serve fantastic breakfast all day long. She got pancake, eggs, and sausage and ate pretty much all of it. And then we went to this place that I mentioned several times episodes ago that's called the Wiggle Room. Big giant indoor play area for toddlers. They've got puzzles and dollhouses and things to climb on, things to throw. You name it, they have it. So we played there for a couple of hours until she started to get super grumpy. We came home. She took a nap. My husband and I folded laundry, you know, like adults. And then we took her back out to a park near our house and we did the slide and swings. We did try out this little bike that she got that doesn't have any pedals on it. But I think it was either too cold outside or she was just tired and didn't want to try it. So that lasted maybe two seconds. And once it got a little too cold for me, I decided that it was time to leave, which... She wasn't happy about, but, you know, she's two and still smaller than me right now. So I could control that. And we ended the day with dinner at a restaurant called The Green Turtle. And the server gave her a little thing of ice cream and whipped cream, which, surprisingly enough, she loved more than the chocolate cake. So I think we ended yesterday on a high note with the ice cream and whipped cream and I have to say that for her second birthday I think we did really good and I really enjoyed spending literally all day with her I loved seeing the joy on her face through everything she got to do and it was just fantastic and now it's Tuesday and you get to hang out with me so let's go ahead and get started the people's temple part two Jim developed a new theology within the church that was directly influenced by the teachings of the Latter Rain movement, William Branham, Father Divine, and his own personal communist views. He called his new theology Apostolic Socialism. Once all of his followers had settled into their new homes in California, 
he started to introduce his new theology. Until the late 1960s, Jim would conceal that his gospel was communism, according to religious studies professor Catherine Wessinger. Jim would often state that traditional Christianity had an incorrect view of God. He called it the flyaway religion and rejected the Bible completely. He stated that it was a tool to oppress women and non-whites. He would tell his followers that he was following the true God who created all things. Now remember how in our last cult, the Unification Church, had an obsession with the divine principle? Well, we have a parallel between them and the People's Temple. Jim Jones taught that ultimate reality was called the divine principle and that it was the true God. He believed that the principle was equal to love and love was equal to socialism. He also taught that the divine principle was the equivalent to being crucified with Christ. On PBS.org, there is an article titled Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple. This article talks about the documentary of the same title that aired on PBS in 2007. In the very first paragraph, it has a quote directly from Jim himself, and it says this, I represent divine principle, total equality, a society where people own all things in common, where there is no rich or poor, where there are no races. Wherever there are people struggling for justice and righteousness, there I am. He seemed extremely full of himself, in my opinion. A former Temple member, Hugh Fortson Jr., who was in this documentary, said that Jim said this to him at one point. What you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. And if you see me as your father, I'll be your father for those of you that don't have one. If you see me as a savior, I'll be your savior. And if you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Now I'm going to share with you a short clip from that documentary that actually has Hugh Fortson talking about his time in the cult. I was one of those kind of guys that um, I used drugs. I was an alcoholic. I drank alcohol and stuff like that. And and all these these people that that were like my age, they were clean. <laughs> Before I came here, I was taking LSD, marijuana, every type of dope you can imagine. Without our pastor Jim Jones to teach me the right way, I would not be in college right now. And for me, that was like, wow, man, I like this. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. It was an interracial group. The choir was interracial. And they used to sing this song, Never heard a man speak like this man before. Never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. At one point, Jim wrote a booklet titled The Letter Killeth. This was written to criticize the King James Bible and to dismiss King James as a slave owner and a capitalist who was responsible for the corrupt translation of scripture. While still in the United States, Jim stayed fearful of the public fully discovering the extent of his communist views. He was afraid that if they were known, he would lose the support of political leaders 
and might face his church being ejected from the Disciples of Christ denomination. He also didn't want to lose the tax-exempt status that he had. Jim used fear to control his followers in California. He constantly prophesied that fires, car accidents, injuries, and even death was going to come upon anyone who was unfaithful to him and his teachings. He claimed that there were enemies seeking to destroy them and their church. The identity of said enemies changed over time. At one point, it was the Ku Klux Klan, then it was the Nazis, then it was the redneck vigilantes, and eventually it became the American government. With the fear he instilled in his followers, he was able to control every aspect of his followers' lives. When someone new came in, they were required to turn over all their assets to the church in exchange for free room and board. They were also required to turn over any income so that it could be used for the benefit of the community. Groups were started that were required to work on various projects, such as an agricultural operation to grow food for the community, and outreach programs where followers were taken by bus to perform community services across the region. This is when the first case of abuse popped up within the church. The Planning Commission would discipline followers who were not fulfilling Jim's vision or following the rules set within the community. Jim went as far as controlling their sex lives and who were allowed to get married. Several members were coerced into getting abortions. Now we're going to talk about the move to San Francisco and Los Angeles. When Jim moved the People's Temple to the Redwood Valley, Yukai area in California, he didn't realize that the space would be too small to expand. He felt that it was necessary to move the church's seat of power to a more urban area. So, in the 1970s, he began to hold church services in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Permanent facilities were erected in 1971 and 1972. In San Francisco, the church occupied a former Scottish Rite temple, and in Los Angeles, they occupied the former building of the First Church of Christ Scientists. The temple that was still in Redwood Valley was dubbed the Mother Church. Los Angeles's purpose was to recruit new members and serve as a station for the weekly bus trips across California. Permanent staff members were set up there, and they were the ones that arranged the trips. The temple that was there was much larger than the one in San Francisco. Even with the Los Angeles temple being larger, Jim decided to move the temple's headquarters to San Francisco. By 1973, the temple had a membership count of 2,570, and 36,000 people subscribed to its fundraising newsletters. With their large rise in followers, they became very influential in San Francisco politics. When George Moscone was running for mayor in 1975, he stated that the temple had an instrumental role in him getting elected. George appointed Jim the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission, and with this newfound power, Jim was able to gain even more control with prominent politicians at the local and national level. 
The way that they recruited new members was to target other churches. In 1970, 150 members took a trip to San Francisco's Missionary Baptist Church and held a faith healing revival where Jim claimed to have healed a man of cancer. At the end of the revival, Jim began to attack and condemn Baptist teachings and started to encourage the members to abandon their church and join his instead. He was very successful in this and ended up talking 200 people into leaving their church and joining his. Another attempt at this was done in 1971 when members visited a tomb and shrine erected for Father Divine shortly after his death. Jim confronted Father Divine's wife and told her that he was the reincarnation of Father Divine himself. He then took over the event and began to address Father Divine's followers and told them who he claimed to be. Instead, Father Divine's wife accused Jim of being the devil and demanded that he leave. He was only able to recruit 12 people this time. The San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star ran a seven-part story on the People's Temple. The journalist for the story was Lester Kinsolving. Lester was an American political talk radio host. He was known for being the first white correspondent to ask questions about the HIV and AIDS epidemic during the Reagan administration. During this story, Lester talked about the several aspects of the church's dealings, their claims of healing, and Jim's ritual of throwing Bibles down in church and yelling, This black book has held down you people for 2,000 years. It has no power. After the first four parts of this story came out, several members of the church picketed at the examiner's building. They harassed the paper's editor and threatened both with defamation suits. Only four of the seven stories were published. Both papers ended up canceling the series. Jim then made large grants to the newspapers in California with the stated goal of supporting the First Amendment. In 1973, eight members attempted to defect from the People's Temple. They called themselves the Gang of Eight. When Jim would find out when someone attempted to defect, he would send a search party after them almost immediately. This gang feared that the same would happen to them. And they were right. As soon as someone noticed that they were all missing, Jim sent out multiple search parties, which included scanning highways from a rented airplane. The gang of eight were traveling in three trucks that were loaded with firearms, and they wanted to head toward Canada. But because they had the firearms with them, they knew that they would be taken away at the border, so instead, they traveled to the hills of Montana. The members in the Gang of Eight were Jim Cobb, Terry Cobb, John Bidoff, Vera Bidoff, Wayne Pitella, Tom Pardgorski, Lena Flowers, and Mikey Tuchetti. This group of people were heavily involved with the temple to know all of its secrets. They wrote a series of letters to Jim explaining why they left, and they also talked about the misconduct within the church and the things that they saw that they did not agree with. One slightly mind-blowing thing that I did not know until I started researching this topic was that First Lady Rosalind Carter met with Jim on many occasions. She spoke with him about Cuba 
and talked to him about the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters. American politician and the first openly gay man to be elected to the public office in California, Harvey Milk, spoke with an audience during several political rallies that were held at the temple. After one of his visits, he wrote this to Jim. Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reached today. I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all the hours and energy placed in a fight. I found what you wanted me to find. I shall be back, for I can never leave. In 1976, Assemblyman Willie Brown served as a master of ceremonies at a large testimonial dinner that was held for Jim. Two notable figures who were in attendance were California Governor Jerry Brown and Lieutenant Governor Mervyn DeMolly. Governor Brown stated in his speech that Jim was what you should see every day when you look in the mirror and that he was a combination of Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Mayo. I'm sorry, but who is Governor Brown looking at in the mirror when he wakes up in the morning? Because I'm sure it's not James Warren Jones. Anyways, by the mid-1970s, the People's Temple had over a dozen satellite congregations in other California cities. These locations included San Francisco, Los Angeles, Yukai, Bakersfield, Fresno, and Sacramento. They also maintained a branch, college tuition program, and dormitory at Santa Rosa Junior College. At this time, the People's Temple earned the reputation for aiding the city's poorest citizens. A strong connection was made with the California state welfare system. The church owned nine residential care homes for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a 40-acre state-licensed ranch for developmentally disabled people. The highest-ranking people in the church handled its members' insurance claims and legal problems. They turned into a client advocacy group. At one point, they were described as a charismatic bureaucracy by socialist John Hall. Now let's get a little more in-depth regarding the San Francisco Temple. With the temple officially moving its headquarters there, Jim began to be more open regarding his political and theological leanings. He openly admitted to being an atheist. In an article with the New York Times, Jim's wife Marceline stated that her husband was trying to achieve social change by mobilizing people through religion. She went on to say that he was using religion to try to get some people out of the opiate of religion and had slammed the Bible on a table yelling, I have got to destroy this paper idol. The San Francisco Temple also started to distinguish themselves with an overtly political message. Jim made it known that he was extremely interested in politics. Now, earlier I mentioned that Jim was appointed to the chairman of the Housing Authority. With this newfound power, he led the fight against the eviction of tenants from the San Francisco's International Hotel. Even with their assistance around the city, 
This did not stop them from arousing police suspicion after Jim started to praise the Sibonese Liberation Army. They are an American left-wing organization that was active between 1973 and 1975 that was considered itself a vanguard army. They were also considered a terrorist organization by the FBI and law enforcement. You would think this would be a giant red flag when you started to praise an organization that is followed by the FBI and law enforcement, but apparently not. In October of 1971, several reporters came to one of the healing services when Jim visited his old church in Indianapolis. This led to an investigation by the Indiana State Psychology Board. A doctor that was involved in the investigation accused Jim of Quakery. This whole investigation sparked alarm within the temple. Jim then announced that he was terminating his ministry in Indiana because he stated that it was too far for him to attend and keep tabs on the church. In 1973, a former follower of Jim's, Ross Case, started working with a Christian prayer group to investigate what was actually happening within the temple. What was uncovered was abuse toward women in the congregation, as well as evidence that Jim was raping members. All of these findings were then reported to the police, but of course, no actions were taken. Instead, the accusations reached Jim, and he became paranoid enough that he felt that he was losing control and needed to relocate the temple to escape the threats and allegations. On December 13, 1973, Jim was arrested and charged with lewd conduct for masturbating in the presence of a male undercover LAPD vice officer in a movie theater bathroom. It was never made clear as to why, but the charges were dropped on December 20th. The court file was then sealed, and the judge ordered the records of his arrest to be destroyed. There goes another red flag. Jim then started working with the Planning Commission to create a plan of escape in the event that there was a raid by the government. They created a long-term plan to relocate the People's Temple permanently. It was decided that Guyana was a favorable location because of their recent revolution and socialist government. It was then voted unanimously to set up an agricultural commune in Guyana, and Jim and several members traveled there to locate a suitable location. By the summer of 1974, land was purchased as well as supplies. Archie and James was put in charge of preparing the new location for the first arrivals. A power generation station, fields for farming, and dormitories were overseen by him. Jim and several members arrived in Guyana in December of 1974. Jim then decided to return to the United States and left Archie in charge because he wanted to continue his efforts to combat any negative press that might still be happening. These efforts, though, were unsuccessful and even more stories were leaked to the public. Journalist for New West magazine Marshall Kilduff published a story that exposed abuse within the People's Temple. This article convinced Jim that Guyana needed to be permanent. 
So with that, he began to compel the members to make their move. He promoted the commune as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary. And with that, we are going to stop here for the evening. Get ready for next week as we are going to discuss all things Jonestown and we're going to end with a mass suicide and the aftermath from that. Now, before you leave here, I need to talk about something really quick. I am promoting a trailer for a fellow podcaster, Dealing Justice. They have season two coming out. And normally, I always promote a podcast at the end of each episode. And the reason for promoting Dealing Justice's podcast is because their entire concept for their show has been ripped off by another big-named podcast. Now, I know what you're going to say. It happens. People get their stories from other podcasts. They cite other podcasts in their episodes when they're researching things. But this did not happen. Dealing Justice even had the detectives that worked with them try and contact this other podcast so that they could talk about this, and they refused. This means that a smaller show who has worked their butts off trying to do an amazing thing has been overshadowed because a bigger creator has taken their concept. I'm not going to say who that creator was. I'm not going to tell you what their podcast was. All I want you to do is listen to this promo from Dealing Justice, as well as a promo from my friends at Crime and Roses podcast. 911, what's the nature of your emergency? Your world can change in the blink of an eye. He walked into the bedroom and you know that she had been murdered. So he's running up and down, screaming, Oh my God, someone called 911. There are two men killing a girl. I know my son, and he would not go that long without saying anything to anyone. Safety can be an illusion, and reality a nightmare. So how do you feel a person, a grown person? Unspeakable crimes can penetrate any small town, big family, pretty face, or innocent child. And in the wake of a loved one's murder or disappearance, there is nothing more cruel or desperate as silence. Why won't people talk about it? That's another thing. People don't want to talk about it around here. For the families of the missing and murdered, they gambled with their sanity as they lose hope in closure and settle for justice. That's where the cold case playing cards come in. In each episode of the Dealing Justice podcast, your hosts Jennifer Dubasek and Lori Jennings will spotlight one card from the cold case playing card deck. Hear the victim's story from the friends and family who knew them best. Her mom will never stop fighting until she finds out what happens to her daughter. Learn about the crime and help close the case. Welcome to Season 2. We're not just playing cards. We're dealing justice. Hi there. I'm Megan. And I'm Danielle. And we are Crime and Roses. We are a true crime and bachelor franchise recap podcast. Yeah, we're both. We are two Georgia attorneys watching and recapping all things bachelor just for you. 
So we're talking Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, Winter Games, Summer Games, all the games. Basically any show that ABC comes up with and forces us to watch, and then we'll release a true crime episode connected to what we've seen on the show that week. So if you don't like true crime, we have The Bachelor. And if you don't like The Bachelor, we have true crime. And if you don't like either... We're probably not the podcast for you, and that's okay. So, if you're into one of those things, both of those things, come check us out as we combine our two favorite things into one-stop listening shop for you. So find us on your favorite podcatcher and on social media at Crime and Roses, and email us at crimeandroses at gmail.com. Bye! Love you, mean it! Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.